you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 47 as we continue in our study of this Old Testament prophet that is referred to as some by the, as the fifth gospel. Isaiah chapter 47 this morning. And as we prepare to hear God's word, and as, I, as we read just a few moments ago about God coming in judgment, and even as we have sung just now, this may seem like a very serious matter, a very weighty matter, and even one that we want to shy away from, the reality of God's judgment. But I want you to know how critically important it is for you to understand the reality that God himself will come and judge. And I want you to know how critical that is for you in order that you will be able to love the world. Your love for others is rooted and based on the fact that God himself is judge. Hear God's word from Isaiah chapter 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence, and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy." On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If you have not been with us over the last uh, couple of years, really, we've been working through the book of Isaiah. 
I've taken some breaks here and there, but we continue this week where we left off last, and now we're in Isaiah chapter 47. And if you flipped back a couple of chapters, uh, you would know, beginning all the way back in chapter 40, that God speaks to Isaiah, and through Isaiah, and actually through all those who minister and declare in his name, and God says, speak a word of comfort. I want to speak comfort to my people. And beginning in chapter 40 and following, what we have is God speaking prophetically to his people a century and a half later. 150 years after Isaiah lived and the people of his day, the the Jewish people in Judah and Jerusalem would be conquered and taken into captivity, into exile in Babylon. At the time of the writing, Babylon was was not in a position of, of power and authority, but they would be one day. And God is speaking forward to his people in captivity, and he's speaking a word of comfort to them. Now, as they experienced Babylon, after they had been conquered and swept away, taken into captivity for 70 years, they saw a mighty kingdom, an incredible kingdom. And the city of Babylon itself was an amazing city, one of the, the premier cities in antiquity. This city that's a walled city, and you've heard about the Hanging Gardens, it's extravagant, uh, an engineering feat, and it's, it's a beautiful place. That's how they experienced it. And their gods of the Babylonians were lifted up and high and exalted, and their kings had names that were based on their gods, like Nebuchadnezzar for, for the god named Nebo, or Belshazzar named after Bel, the god the false god of the Babylonians who God had said in a chapter before, he will humble and bring down. And and that's why we have to talk about them in past because no one knows the name of those false gods anymore. We have to talk about Babylon as a city that is now today in ruins because God said, I will raise up one to judge Babylon. I want you to know that Isaiah chapter 47 fits squarely in this section of this book as a message of comfort. God is comforting his people who would be in exile. And what he says to them is this, God will deal with his enemies and your oppressors. God will deal with them. He he talks about their experience of Babylon. Back in verse one, if you look at your text, he refers to them maybe as they had referred to themselves as a virgin daughter now, he's, he's describing the city and the people uh, that have never been attacked even, much less conquered. No, no one has breached the walls of Babylon. They are a virgin daughter. They have, had, they have no rivals. He also says in verse 1, he refers to them in the ESV anyway, tender and delicate. There's an extravagance about the Babylonians. There's this beauty and splendor and with their hanging gardens and their opulent buildings. They're tender and delicate. Some translations and commentators say that could be describing them as a spoiled brat even. That's, that's Babylon as the, as the Israelites experienced it in exile. But notice what God says will happen Instead of being powerful and, 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 and a city that can't be uh, attacked, he says, no, you're going to come down and sit in the dust. You won't have a throne anymore. A, a repeated theme in the book of Isaiah is how God brings down those who are high and exalted, especially those who are high and exalted in their own estimation. 
He says to Babylon, you will be brought down to the dust. And instead of tender and delicate, actually, he says, as you read in the text, you'll take up the millstone and you'll grind. You think you you are living in palaces, you are going to be a slave. You are going to be the one grinding the flour. You're gonna be the one whose garments are stripped off and are exposed even as you are marched out of the city, perhaps through rivers and streams as slaves into another place. And we know today, if you were to look up Babylon, this great, powerful, extravagant city, it is now simply an archaeological site that's in ruins. It's no more. Who is it that did this? Who could do this? You find in verse 4, God saying, or in verse 3, at the second half, he says, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. God speaks in the first person through Isaiah, and he says, I'm the one who will do this. And he says, I will take vengeance. That means I will respond in kind. I will will bring punishment that fits the offense. God says, I'm going to do this. Vengeance is mine. And then there's a response in verse four where we find out more about this one who speaks. This is our Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. Redeemer, as we've talked about, that's mentioned multiple times in Isaiah. That's the idea of one who is is the, the next of kin, the closest family member who can redeem property that's been lost for a family member, who can, who can, bring, can deliver someone out of, of bondage or debt. God says, for my people, I am their next of kin. I am the one who will come and redeem you. And they say, this is our Redeemer who does this. Not only that, but he is the Lord of hosts. You've heard that phrase many times. That can be understood as being like the Lord of armies. You think Babylon is powerful? Wait until you see my armies. But we also know this word is used to describe stars, like the the heavenly host. We think of the stars, and maybe that's what's intended here, because as you'll hear in a little bit, the Babylonians were stargazers. They, they look to the stars to try to read signs and understand what's going to come and, and how to understand the, the movement of nations and power. And they look to the stars and God says, no, I'm the Lord of hosts. Not only that, but he is the Holy One of Israel. He is holy and righteous. Therefore, out of his very character, he must, he must punish sin. Out of his own character, he must bring justice to bear, but he is also not only the Holy One, but of Israel, and he is their Redeemer. So he must also act out of his character as a God who is in covenant, covenant relationship with his people, who love his people. So his activity flows out of both things, his righteousness, that he must punish sin, he must bring justice to bear, but he also is fully committed to the good of his people, and he will redeem them. Now, why is it that God would do this, though? Why is God responding this way to the Babylonians and saying, I'm going to bring you down into the dust and remove your throne You're going to be taken away into captivity like a slave. Why would he say this to them? Especially if you read in verse 6. In verse 6, God says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. Wasn't Babylon God's instrument? 
God had used the Babylonians to discipline his own people. Remember, we, we saw that in the first part of Isaiah, how he's telling them, listen, if, if you won't trust God, you're gonna be handed over. If you won't, if you won't place your confidence in, in, your, uh, the, in the Holy One of Israel, who is your, cov- your God by covenant, the God of your fathers, God's gonna discipline you. And sure enough, he raised up the Babylonians to do so. God says, I gave them into your hand. But notice, though God used the Babylonians, look at how they used that, that role. He says to them, first, you showed them no mercy. I intended to discipline my people, but you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. On the elderly, your yoke was especially heavy. Someone recently, I was in that event, a few of our church members were there as well who referred to some in the room as seasoned citizens. Uh, that's a good designation. Yeah, they're seasoned citizens, not senior. But, but we know as we get older, we become more and more vulnerable, not only physically, but, but sometimes mentally. We feel vulnerable that we can be taken advantage of. And sure enough, the Babylonians use that to their advantage. They put heavy yokes on the weakest. And what we find in Scripture over and over is that God especially has his eye of mercy toward those who are the most vulnerable, to the weak, uh, to the widow, to the orphan, to the elderly. And he says to the Babylonians, you are merciless. But it didn't end there. God's judgment wasn't just because they were merciless. Look at verse seven. He says, you said, I shall be mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. They didn't remember God's purpose in delivering the Jews into their hands. They didn't remember what is God's intent for this. Nebuchadnezzar had been told. He had been told what what the deal was here. But no, you forgot that. You didn't remember that. And they became self-confident in their position of authority. You became self-confident that this position of authority is yours by right. I will be mistress. I will be in this position of favor. And it's just by right. No one can take this from me. Let's continue in the next verse, verse 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Not only were they merciless and self-confident in their authority, they were also self-assured in their power and wealth. They thought, we have this power. No one can jeopardize this, our, our, our position, our authority, but also we have wealth. We, we have a, an abundant flow of provision. We're not afraid of widowhood or childlessness. Those both both represent the loss of financial security. A widow was financially vulnerable as was one who was childless, who had no children to provide for her. Babylon said, we'll never be like that. Self-assured in that. And then finally in verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. So not only was Babylon merciless, self-confident in her authority, self-assured in her power, but she was also self-secure in her immorality. (laughs) I do what I want to do. Nobody sees me. 
And notice too, maybe it caught your ear, this repetition of using language that we find on God's lips. I am and there is no other. Anytime we become self-confident, self-assured, and self-secure in our own rights or our own immorality or our own position of power and wealth, we begin in small ways saying exactly what Babylon said here, I am and there is no other. God says, I will bring you down to the dust. God notices. It didn't miss his attention. The consequences, the consequences to, to Babylon's character, to her, to her heart, to these things that God expresses, he says there's going to be loss of provision. You will experience widowhood. Maybe that's the loss of military. You'll experience childlessness. Maybe that's the loss of citizens. But there will be loss and you'll lose authority. You won't have a throne. In verse 11, evil and disaster will come upon you and you can't save yourself. You cannot save yourself. The ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. In Scripture, in the Bible, Babylon is more than just a city. It's more than just a city. It's more than just a nation that once rose to power and took the Israelites into captivity and were conquered eventually by Cyrus, the Persian king, as he served as God's instrument too. It, it, it was those things, but it's not only those things in Scripture. For instance, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. If you then read in the book of Revelation, You'll find this, an angel declaring these words, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So not only did Peter refer to Rome as Babylon, which he knew it, it wasn't ancient Babylon, but then we find Babylon in Revelation described as this, this one who promotes immorality in the earth. In Revelation 17 and 18, the, the name Babylon is given to a wicked woman who tempts and seduces. She exhibits pride and arrogance. And actually in Revelation 18, Isaiah 47 is quoted in reference to. So Babylon takes on a much bigger significance in Scripture. Listen to Andrew Davis in his commentary. He says this, quote, Thus Babylon has a symbolic meaning of the world system under satanic domination. More, more specifically, it seems that in every era of world history, the spirit of Babylon settles down under Satan's dark wisdom to refer to whatever realm is dominating the earth, militarily or economically. So the prediction of the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 47 is ultimately timeless, relevant to every generation of human history. Now, you may not share his convictions there. Maybe your thoughts are not as pessimistic as his are about that, but it seems to be clear that this spirit that's exhibited here among the Babylonians, we've seen it continue in the world even to today when there's mercilessness, when there's this self-assurance, self-confidence in immorality and power and wealth and authority. And the message of Isaiah 47 still rings true. God will judge such a spirit in those who exhibit it. Now, there is in that a warning 
a stern warning that has to go out into all the world. And that warning is for all of God's enemies and those who oppose his church. But there is also a word of comfort. This is intended to be a word of comfort for God's people. And what we find is the one who is the judge is our redeemer. Did the Babylonians have a redeemer? Did they they have a redeemer of their own who could come and save them? They were devout people. They were deeply devoted to their religion. You can, you can read about that in verse 9, uh, where we read about their many sorceries, the great power of their enchantments. In verses 12 and 13, it talks about, uh, again, enchantments and sorceries, um, many councils, those who gaze at the stars, at the new moons. Maybe you've read in the book of Daniel how, how Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he went to all of their, their astrologers and he went to their, their, uh, their wise men and their magicians and said, tell me my dream and interpret it and none could. That was their religion and they were deeply devoted to it. But their devotion couldn't save them. They had faith in their visions and their dreams and their enchantments and sorceries, but their faith could not deliver them. Their faith and their devotion could not atone for their sins, as we read about in verse 11. In fact, all of their military power, their extravagance, their hanging gardens, their religious devotion, none of those things could deliver them, but in the end, they would be like straw engulfed in a flame when confronted with the justice of God. That's in verse 14, did you see that? Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. And the chapter ends with these words, there is no one to save you, period. And today, people still place their trust in some of those same idols military strength or wealth or power or their own visions, you name it, whatever it may be, none of those can save. And in their day of reckoning, God's enemies, whenever they lived, wherever they are, God's enemies will not be confronted with a system of religion they failed to adhere to, but they will be confronted with the sovereign God they refused to bow to. No matter how mighty they appeared to be in this life or how devout or how much faith they had in their religion, there was no one else and nothing else that could save them. Who can save? Who does save? The judge. The judge is the redeemer. God saves. God alone can save. How does God save his people? People like me and you who just like the Babylonians and the worst of our enemies, whoever you may imagine them to be, just like them, we have sinned against God. We have wanted to hide our wickedness. We have wanted to say in the dark of the night or in our rooms as we're huddled in front of the, in front of the computer screen saying, surely no one sees me. We are just as guilty. How can God save us, people who've rejected and spurned him? How does God do this? He sends his son. He sent his son, Jesus, to save his people from their sins. As we read earlier in the service, this ultimate divine revelation that John Murray talked about. 
How is it that Jesus, though, how could Jesus deliver people who deserve to be consumed like stubble just as much as our oppressors deserve it? Jesus made atonement for sin. The word is, is here. They, they didn't have anything that would atone for their sins, but we do. That's what Christ came to do. And when we think about atonement, that is that Jesus would reconcile us to God. He would, he would effectually cleanse us and simultaneously pay a debt for us. There's, there's two parts to the atonement. First, Jesus came and he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. He obeyed every command. He, his motivations were pure. He lived a sinless and perfect life. But then he also dealt with the guilt and condemnation for sin. And it was the sin of others. The atonement includes both things. Uh, maybe you've heard it described this way. Um, imagine that we have a, a glass of pure water clear, pure, life-giving water. Imagine that as a, as a picture of the holiness that God says he requires. God says, you must be holy as I am holy. So we're talking about a glass full of pure water like the holiness of God. And, and I want you to, to, to see that and to, to recognize Jesus came and lived this sinless, righteous, perfect life. Now, we have a glass of water also. We have a glass that, that depicts our morality and our life, and you could, we won't even talk about the inherited sin from our father, Adam, but even in our own life, think of, there's, there's many things that you've done that are, that are commendable, I'm sure, I'm sure, I've seen many of those on display, but I also want you to think about all the times when we, when we um, didn't tell the truth, and with each of those, a spoonful of, of poison into that glass and then the times when we've coveted something that wasn't ours, a few more spoonfuls probably, or when we've slandered someone, or not only times when we've, we've committed sins of commission, things we've done, but what about those things we failed to do that God calls us to, like to love our neighbor or to forgive our neighbor? And you think, oh boy, that's a few more scoops. And by the time we, we, we see that our glass is full of of poison, and I want you to imagine that that you're sitting across uh, at a at a table with Christ, and and you have your glass of poison, and that represents death, which the wages of sin is death, and and He has this glass of pure and holy, life-giving water, and what Jesus does is He comes to us, and He reaches across the table, and He grabs your glass with a hand, and He grabs grabs His with the other, and He switches them. And he gives that, that, that life, that pure, sinless life. And he takes our glass and he drinks every drop. Every drop. He empties the cup of God's wrath. What we deserved for all of those sins of omission and commission and our thoughts and our motivations and our intentions that, that we, want to, we want to be delicate with, but God says, no, they are, they are like... They're vile before me. Jesus takes that all and he consumes it. And he dies in our place. And in our place, he lived and gives us his holiness 
and his righteousness. The righteousness that saves is not your righteousness. It's Jesus's righteousness given to you. The Babylonians were conquered and the Israelites eventually were sent back home to Jerusalem because the Redeemer of Israel had not yet come. God's plan for the Israelites wasn't complete. Jerusalem had to be restored. The temple had to be rebuilt so that a sinless man from Nazareth named Jesus would ride into the city on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna. And then a few days later, he would walk back out of the city carrying a cross to atone for the sins of his people. How is it that this atoning work of Jesus, how is it applied to us, both in fulfilling the law for us, but also satisfying the demands of justice in our place? It's counted to those who have faith in him. Our Redeemer is the very one who will ultimately judge the nations as they appear before his tribunal, like we said before. Everyone will give an account of of the wickedness and cruelty and rebellion against God. It's Jesus who will come back in that. But as we have faith in him in his first coming, that he came as our redeemer, then he is the one who's already faced that vengeance for us. The Lord of hosts, the Holy One who saves and judges is our redeemer. He's our savior. Alec Matier says this, the power that gathers the nations, overthrows kingdoms, breaks kings and ends empires is a power of compassion to the church. The same power that will judge the nations is exercised toward you in compassion and love. And in closing, I'll just say this, because our Redeemer is their judge, We are free. (laughs) You are free to love and bless those who hate you. Jesus said this, I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In writing this, the Apostle Paul, like Jesus before him, was acknowledging that we will face evil in this life. There have been and there will be injustices committed against you. And your temptation, your inclination even will be to retaliate. You'll wanna fight fire with fire, Blow for blow, an insult for an insult. Part of that impulse, I believe, it's an inherent longing for for justice in the world. And that's not all bad. It actually may be part of you being created in God's image. But that inherent longing is co-opted in our lives and it's corrupted by our sin nature. And instead of just longing for justice, we want vengeance. But God says that vengeance is his. And so he calls us then instead to show mercy. 
Way back, about a year and a half ago, we covered the same thing back in Isaiah chapter 14 where God describes the, the judgment of Babylon in much more detail. And in that sermon, I mentioned a book by a man named Miroslav Volf that I would like to share again today. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. In that book, he shares lessons that he learned about God and justice and loving our enemies as Serbian forces were establishing rape camps in and around his hometown. Like the people of Judah and like the early Christians under Nero and and many other Roman emperors and Christians facing persecution in China and regions in Africa and the Middle East even today, Miroslav Volf experienced the gruesome realities of cruelty firsthand. And the book that he wrote had a thesis. The thesis of that book is this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He wrote, violence thrives today, secretly nourished, by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. Those who refuse to believe that God will come in judgment feel like judgment is left to them today and violence thrives in that. He goes on to say, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, then God would not be worthy of our worship. Wolf believes that the only way to let go of our demand for retaliation is to hold on to the belief that God hates injustice more than we do, and he will not overlook it. He writes this, without entrusting oneself to the God who judges justly, it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified Messiah and refuse to retaliate when abused. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. Do you remember Isaiah 40? God calling for ministers of his word to comfort his people. Isaiah 47 is included in that comfort. Our Redeemer will deal with his enemies and our opponents. Those who oppress the church, God will deal with those. Whatever opposition or persecution or exile God's people face in this life, God will bring justice. Vengeance belongs to him. And Jesus himself will come come again to judge the living and the dead. So brothers and sisters, we are free. We are free then to show mercy. We are free to show kindness. We are freed from the need to, to, to avenge ourselves. We are free from the, the feeling of that we must bring justice to bear. We are free to entrust that to God and love those, even those who persecute. And we can do this to God's glory and in Christ's name. And as we do so, may it be the love of Christ that goes forward, that we'll just be a conduit of the love and mercy that we've been shown. Pray with me. Lord, it is a weighty thing when we consider the reality that you're a God who is holy and that you will come in judgment. But Father, I pray that that, the weightiness of that reality 
will be for us a weight of glory, not because we are eager for you to come and and look at the, the sin in our lives, not that we want to be held up and examined, but Lord, we know that you have already poured out your wrath for our sins on a substitute, on Jesus Christ himself. Lord, I pray that we would respond to that, that reality with praise and worship and joy and gladness and humility. But Lord, also that as we, as we understand that we are now walking and living as people who've been redeemed and who are united to Christ by faith, Lord, enable us in this life to live out the kindness and mercy and love of Christ, knowing that vengeance belongs to you. Help us to do this. We are weak. We are weak. So help us, Holy Spirit, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.